My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. On this episode, I got to talk to Lady. We started out talking about Pathfinder Adventure Paths. Then we got into some fun topics like optional player death, creating NPCs. We had a pretty long section on NPCs and making them feel alive. Some house rules. Lady even shared her house rule document with us, so check the show notes for that. And some book inspiration. So we got a couple book recommendations this week. And she also has a Discord server, so she'll talk about that at the very end of the episode. But be sure to check out the invite link in the show notes. Remember to like, follow, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening on. Be sure to comment your favorite part of the episode. If you're interested in chatting further or being on the show, check out our Discord server. Link is in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and let's get started. Welcome. I have Andrea, a.k.a. Lady, with me. Why don't you tell us how you got started in tabletop role-playing games? So it's kind of a two-part answer to that. The, you know, one part's going to be the typical answer most people are going to tell you. They're going to be all, oh, you know, a friend got me involved in it, which she did in high school. But the truth is, is that most of my interest in gaming that led to TTRPG gaming is built up over a long period of time of role-playing in general. So what it was is when I was like 10 years old, I got into fanfic writing for Pokemon and Digimon. And after that, I got in contact with some other fanfic writers, and we started role-playing with each other. And from there, I kind of expanded. I found role-playing message boards, particularly for those um, fandoms that I was in. And when those, you know, collapsed over time, as they always do, I started branching out into making my own. So I got this idea. It was my first foray into, I guess you could say, a kind of DMing called Chosen Journey way way back in like the early 2000s and it was a it was a general all-purpose role-playing board where people could come they could make their character and it was just sort of a sort of like a fight club almost because that was kind of the way the the mode that most of the role plays had been in at the time um the arrow of i teleport behind you you could say (laughs) Uh, and then after that, you know, I experimented some more with that and I wound up building the next one, which was uh, an original setting I created called Naruto, which, you know, bears an unfortunate resemblance to a certain anime, but I didn't know of it at the time. And it's a setting where people would create humans that had control over elements, kind of like Avatar, but a little bit, a little bit more general, like... You could have somebody who could control fire and water, but not like three different kinds unless they were super special, (laughs) like chosen by the gods, basically. And that went on for about 10 years, I want to say. That's a pretty long time. Yeah, it, it unfortunately not ever got too popular. It mostly stayed in a small group of the same people who, for the most part, most of them are my players in my my DM, my uh, Pathfinder games now. Um, and then I, I had one more hurrah with a Homestuck-based game called The Glitch that got very popular. I think I got up to 150 players on that one, so I'm pretty proud. But all of that kind of led to me being really primed to be into um, tabletop role playing. So when my friends were like, hey, why don't you come on over? We're going to play this thing called Dungeons and Dragons with, you know, my dad's roommate. 
so I went over and it, and you know, they handed me the source books. Um, and I looked into them. I was like, Hey, this is cool. So you use dice as sort of like a random element. And yeah, that's pretty much it. And I was, I was hooked. That was, that was the end of it. I was forever smitten. <laughs> so what edition of D and D did you start out with? So I started on 3.5, but it was very heavily homebrewed. Um, I was, I was uh, hot off Dragonlance at the time, so I wanted to play a Kinderbard. <laughs> um, but beyond that, unfortunately, and I can't believe they let me play. They were a long, like decades running campaign. They were leveled like 25, and I entered <laughs> that like level 20, first time ever playing any tabletop role playing game. And it was level 20. It was crazy. Yeah, that would be a lot to learn just going from zero to 20 right off the bat <laughs> they were they were nice you know they were very permissible and forgiving but it was so heavily homebrewed that it was practically its own setting and a lot of it was just me showing up and enjoying the atmosphere um you know there were some problematic elements the the game suffered heavily from dm's girlfriend syndrome where it was all pretty much the plot circled around those two but... oh sure yeah. So after that, I started DMing on my own, and I was that's that's when I really got a better grip on it. It was a, I had a few missteps at first trying to figure out how to actually play for realsies, but I got a hang of it. <laughs> and what do you primarily run now? I run primarily Pathfinder First Edition. Um, I'm eyeballing Fifth Edition. I would love to get into that, but I have a rule of thumb that I'm not going to DM a system. Um, unless I get an opportunity to like learn it first, like not just read the books, but experience it with some exceptions. Um, but I haven't found anyone to run a game for me, so I'm still doing Pathfinder. Eventually I'll try 5th edition. Do you mainly stick with Pathfinder now? Be well, for that reason, because uh, you haven't found anybody else to kind of run it for you, but also just because you have kind of a stockpile of the Pathfinder books? Oh, yeah, definitely. I bought a whole bunch of licenses on Hero Lab. I have a bunch of PDFs I've gotten my hands on, you know, bought through Paizo and third party through DriveThru RPG. It's like where I send half my paycheck some days. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, most of my resources are sunk into Pathfinder at this time. I'm not above breaking away from it, but I've gotten very enamored with it. And I, in turn, you know, I have become the master. <laughs> I have homebrewed it. It to such an extent it's practically like pathfinder 1.5 edition <laughs> well and if you're comfortable with it you know and you're familiar and you just know how to run it it's you're probably going to produce better games than as well yeah and you know but and here's another reason i stick with it i really like paizo's writing and while i have done homebrew games in the past these days you know i work full time i'm just don't really have the time and energy to do too much homebrew stuff in such a crunchy system as Pathfinder. So I mostly run pre-made adventure paths. Uh, right now I'm doing Reign of Winter. We're on book five of six for that. And I'm not really familiar with the adventure paths. Can you just kind of explain that? Yeah, sure. So an adventure... Okay, so you're familiar with a module, right? Yeah, yep. Uh, so really an adventure path is just five or six modules all tied into an overarching story. In Pathfinder in particular, they tend to be almost standalone. Like there is enough stuff connecting them that you can't exactly just pick one and run it without heavily tweaking it. But you, they're also 
different enough from each other, especially in rain and winter, um, that you don't necessarily have to worry too much about the continuity beyond some general plot threads. So Adventure Pass, yeah, so that's basically it. Basically five or six modules tied together with some kind of common thread. So how long does it take to play through an Adventure Path? Uh, so I run about once a week. And doing so with minimal skips, it takes me about two years to get through a whole adventure path. Okay, so that's quite a lot of content then. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Uh, one one book will usually last, you know, three months to four months, depending on what's in it. Or or if my players are speed, managing to speed run it somehow. <laughs> yeah, so you said you guys meet once a week. Yep, um, I actually uh, I run two groups, so <laughs> I've got one Friday and one on Saturday. Oh boy, so you're actually running twice a week just for different. Yep. Uh, so it's yep, yep, same same adventure path for both of them. So they're playing simultaneously, separate servers for each group. I let them name themselves. So on one group we've got the uh, wild party, and the other one is the weird collective. <laughs> And we also have a common server between them where they can mix and mingle because we're all friends. And that's also where they can talk about things. We've got a spoiler chat if they really can't help themselves. But otherwise, we keep it to only content that each group has already experienced. I'm managing to keep them pretty much on track with each other. That probably helps with prep then, though, right? Because you're not prepping for two different campaigns. You're just prepping for one, but you're playing it twice, essentially. Yeah, exactly. I I told them when we started this, because before it was all one group, and then after, after that I said, no way, I can't do this anymore. You guys are too big. It was like, uh, it's it's like 11 people total. <laughs> so we split up, and I said, if we're going to do this, and we're going we're gonna to split up. I'm not making two different campaigns. You guys are all playing the same thing. And so what I do is when I start a new book in the series, I prep everything ahead of time. I get all the maps done. I get all the tokens. I get all my sheets in order. And then all I do, and since it's all digital, all I do is copy-paste it. And then there you go, two exact copies of the same campaign. And then how has the... Do the different groups kind of have, you know, vastly different experiences in it, or do they tend to kind of follow the same paths through? So adventure paths tend to be a little bit railroady, which my players don't mind. They're used to that because just of just how what I run things, they tend to be pretty compliant with the plot. Um, some groups would hate that, but we, we're cool with it. So with that said, they don't go too crazy from each other. However. For one of the other reasons I like the Paizo Adventure Paths is they usually give you multiple ways to approach a problem. And it's been so much fun watching two groups figure out different ways of solving issues. Uh, I can give you a really funny example if you want. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so there's this one um, part, and I think it was book two, so spoilers if you are going to play Reign of Winter, uh, where they need to go take out a young white dragon who is sitting at the top of a clock tower in order to start, basically, get this guy out of the way and we can start, like, a insurrection movement inside the city because dude's in charge of a whole bunch of people. So group... A so wild party basically they're very stealthy they have a lot of they have a rogue they've got a you know like uh we have a lot of third party classes if I start naming them people aren't gonna know what they are but take it take it from me they're very stealthy for the most part 
and they try to go for more tactic oriented approaches to things. So what they did was they went in the middle of the night and they cast invisibility and flight spells or whatever. And they basically flew to the top of the clock tower, assassinated the dragon and, and then flew off before all of the minions could wake up and come avenge their dead master there. Whereas the other group, uh, we're collective, uh, they bashed their way up from ground floor all the way to the top, completely kicked in every single door they could find, slaughtered the place. Uh, they got the they got the dragon sword. The other group didn't. They left too quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but as you can see, they're vastly different approaches to problems. Right. So it's the same same encounter, but slightly different uh, approach, and then kind of the end result is the same ultimately, but some slightly different consequences between. Um, yeah. how many dead people there were and if they got loot or not, that sort of thing. Exactly. So, you know, the group that tends to be more in and out, get the uh, objective done, they tend to, you know, miss out a little bit maybe on loot or there might be more enemies kind of around in general, but they also reduce their body count and they are also way quicker as a result so they can get through issues without needing to linger and waste resources on healing. Whereas the other group, they just reap the rewards of being your typical dungeon crawler group where they're just going to make sure they drag the place from top to bottom and search every nook and cranny. So when you're uh, DMing for those, then it probably feels very different to to swap between groups. Yeah, it's definitely extremely refreshing, and it keeps me charged. Uh, I don't feel like, okay, here we go again. Unless it's a section that I personally didn't enjoy running in the first place. I'm actually at that position right now, which is unfortunate, where it's uh, book five... They are basically assaulting a military camp, and there's the in this case, Paizo really dropped the ball. They didn't give a really good option for stealth, so it really is a case of literally round by round combat against a whole army camp because there's no way you can do it, but other than a frontal assault. So with the adventure paths, you have, I assume, a decent amount of the prep done right in the in the book and in the writing. How much yeah. extra stuff do you? find you have to do then for to prepare for a session so me personally um most of my personal touches come in with the npcs and this is this is reflecting my history of role playing i like to create extremely well fleshed out npcs with character personality sometimes even a backstory that they wouldn't otherwise have i've even taken whole npcs out of an adventure path and swapped in characters I've made in the past just so I could give them a little bit more of a flair. And that's the biggest thing that I personally change and have to work on. And, and even then, it's not that much work for me. I'm, I have a lot of experience with making characters on the fly that are at least have a hint of life to them. <laughs> so... Uh, everything else I kind of lean on the books for. So I'm like, for example, the encounters, I don't mess with those very much because I'm very bad at balancing. It's kind of funny. I'm a DM and I really suck at math. <laughs> <laughs> so I try not to mess with anything too numerical. Um, in the past, I've maybe changed up how an adventure might like pan out. There have been times when... Um, the book might say, if the characters do X, Y, Z, then this is the consequence. And I'll be like, mm, that's kind of dumb. I'm going to change it to be a little bit more fun or realistic or rewarding. Sure. So you're kind of tweaking bits and pieces of it, but nothing too major. 
Yeah. Do you that ha- saves me a lot of headache. <laughs> yeah, I believe that. Yeah, messing with numbers, even for like Dungeons and Dragons or something, can be. You can tip things one way or another. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes to be too strong or too weak for your uh, enemies. We've experienced that with um, encounters that were maybe toned down a little bit and then the enemies rolled terribly so we just you know mop the floor and then the gm (laughs) comes back and it's like you know you guys had it pretty easy last week so we're gonna we're gonna try something a little bit tougher and then they just completely kill everybody Um, (laughs) yeah there's that and there's the fact that it's hard to know how the dice are going to sway things there's such especially in pathfinder and older versions of DD, there's so much leeway for the dice to just completely like wipe out a group if they got very unlucky uh case in point one of the enemies my groups are facing right now they have they since they're in they're in a place where there's modern firearms a sniper (laughs) rolled a crit times four damage it was like a hundred (laughs) damage so i was like "Mm, that's a headshot (laughs) nice (laughs) and that was on your players yeah so and, and you know it would have killed that character flat out but i also believe strongly that the players should be having fun first and foremost so i have so of my many 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 house rules one of them is that you can choose that if you were you're going to be dropped dead from an attack you can instead choose to take an injury which is usually going to be something pretty severe and permanent like losing a limb or in this case if if the player had taken that option turns out he could survive that hit couldn't believe it um but if he'd chosen to take the option i was going to give the character uh amnesia Ah, yeah, that would be a good uh, injury for that. Yeah, and also tank is in it a little bit. <laughs> um, the Fantasy Flight Star Wars game, uh, so like Age of Rebellion, Edge of the Empire, Force and Destiny, I think is the third one, That they have kind of that same thing where when you hit zero hit points, you don't die, you go unconscious and you take a critical injury, so you roll in a, a critical injury mm-hmm. table that's like one to, is it one to 250 or 1 to 150 and then for each so you roll a d100 to see what you get and obviously the lower you roll the easier it is to like resolve it or maybe it might not be even permanent might just be kind of like a couple session thing Mm -hmm. but for every critical injury that you have you add 10 to the roll and if you get to that top level like the i think it's it might it might only be 150 if once you get to that top level um it's like you know you roll 250 or higher and your character just dies so mm-hmm. it kind of bakes in some of that injury as well where you're not you, you you know you don't have death saves or anything you just you just take an injury and then you kind of move on and mm-hmm. uh, so that's kind of an interesting concept too that you've pulled something similar for your game yeah, yeah, because, you know, before that, we were even playing around with different ways of getting the same result, where it's like, okay, well, we'll just act like your character got hit with a resurrection spell, so you have a negative level, but you're still able to, you know, play on. And I make it optional, because for some players, that's also, like, the, the thrill of almost dying makes it more fun for them. So for them, they die, they die. That's their choice. <laughs> well, I like that you have the option there, and then... It can lean into that, like, heroic sacrifice, too, if the moment is right. Like, you know, my character would totally go down, you know, in this way, trying to protect the party or whatever. 
Mm -hmm, um, exactly. Can yeah, lead to some I've good had moments. I've had some players say that if it's for something plot related, they're fine if their character dies, but if it's just to some rando goblin, they'd rather not. And I don't blame them for that. That's not exactly fun. Right. That's where they wake up um, uh, bound and then being like yeah. dragged across the forest floor by back of goblins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I don't even like TPKs, especially in a pre-written adventure. That's kind of awkward. Um, <laughs> so if, if they ever TPK, I've already got plans in mind for how it's more like, okay, you guys don't all die. Instead, you're in dire straits. You're deep in enemy territory. What are you going to do? You know, keep the story going. When your characters, when you do have characters die, do you just have them roll up new characters and then work them into the story? So far, nobody's taken death. <laughs> <laughs> but if they were, then yeah, and I do my best to make it make some sense on how they're going to get there. I've kind of been to my, because right now they're off uh, Galarian, so they're off planet, and I've kind of been like, could you guys try not to die? It's going to be real awkward to explain <laughs> your new character joining up if you're off planet, but I'll do it. I'll figure it out. And, you know, my players are also really forgiving of me um needing to make like just go with it comments so if i had to do a case of oh yeah this person has been um following you this whole time and now they're stepping in it's dumb and cheesy but they'd roll with it yeah we kind of had that in a game that i ran i was running a one shot a star wars one and we had i had two players and then um one of my players was like, hey, I have a buddy that would really be interested in this. Um, do you mind if he joins? He's like, yeah, sure. So like halfway through the session, there's just another person there, you know, <laughs> sneaking through a secret facility. But, you know, it's just like, you just don't worry about it. Pretend he was there the whole time and, and just didn't do anything <laughs> the first uh, session. Real, related note, how do you handle it when a player can't make a session? Um, sorry, I'm turning the question on you for this one, just because uh, I find that to be a fascinating topic. No, that's fine. Um, since I don't have a ton of players, usually, if somebody can't make a session, it's usually a rescheduled event because... Nah. Um, so, like, the Star Wars game, I only had two players, so if we were missing one, <laughs> that's not, not really a whole lot to play with. Um, yeah. I think the most I've ever actually ran a game for is three. So, yeah, if you take pretty much anybody out you're you're down quite quite a bit yeah makes sense <laughs> how about for you you sound um, like you so, have a lot more players oh yeah so you know a group of i think there's five and six i'm not going to count it's something like that uh if what it is is we have a threshold of missing players so if x number of players can't make a session then we'll reschedule it because it'll be like well that's way too many but if it's just one or maybe two uh, for the other group, what it is is we basically just pretend that person's kind of in the background doing what their thing. Um, sort of like if we're in a fight and they aren't there this time, they're basically off screen fighting grunts for us. <laughs> sure, they're the CGI in the background. Um... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the big it's like a Lord of the Rings video game where you have your main <laughs> character is like fighting, but you're only fighting like ten people, but there's like a whole bunch of people just in the background animations that yeah, go into exactly. town. Um, do you have so you mentioned the NPC thing? Do you have any tips for how you make your NPCs more like alive? 
Yes, I do. So, and this is good, not to not to come off as condescending, but my first tip, first and foremost, is be a big reader. Um, I get so much inspiration from books, from the styles of the authors. How do they, you know, make their characters interesting? And I internalize that over time. But once you know, beyond that, um, some things to keep in mind is if you can try to give your character a kind of a voice i want to say like uh not 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 like physically if i i actually can't do voices but uh in your head and then think about how they would interact with either the players or maybe some other npcs and just run scenarios in your head trying to think of what this character would do as in terms of a reaction to things and that will help give you a baseline um and as you do that more and more and you get used to doing it you can be so reflexive that you start coming up with a personality just by thinking up various bits of whatever you need to introduce them um and then from there, and here's a here's a like a life hack for you. Uh, once you have a good core cast of NPCs, start making their families, and start making their descendants, and start making their ancestors, and make a. This is why I made a giant family tree, and most of my NPCs come off of that. Sure. So you can kind of mix and mingle them and then you kind of have a baseline for what they maybe should be like or what their interests and stuff are like mm -hmm. um, i'd say a lot of my characters share a lot of similar personality traits or tropes you could say and that when it what makes them not all blend together and be samey is that I think about what makes them stand out from those characters that they're too similar to. I have a real bad habit of, like, for example, making um, roguish males who are very charming, but I need to make differentiate them. So for one, I might give them some kind of crippling fear of affection, or for another one, they have hidden anger issues. It's very important to think about the flaws of your NPCs as well, because that's going to make a much more rounded character. Like when you, if nothing else, tell yourself what's something that they're good at and what's something that they're bad at and what's something do they want people to see and what do they not want people to see. Sure. And then do you just write those down as just a handful of sentences? Oh, uh, I don't need to write it down personally, but <laughs> <laughs> not to flex, but I can usually remember it. But because uh, as I play with them, they get cemented in my brain. If I, if I don't use them, then, yeah, they kind of fall by the wayside, but they'll get recycled eventually just under another name. But, yeah, I would recommend jotting down the, if you're a note taker take those as their notes, you know, who are they? What are they like? Um, I can actually recommend a book for people who really want a good springboard for molds to cast their characters in. I got it way back in my English lit days. It's called Character Traits. Um, sorry, Writer's Guide to Character Traits. And it's by a person whose last name is, uh, oh, sorry, Linda Edelstein, E-D-E-L-S-T-I. E-I-N, and it's literally a book filled with character um, tropes and what how those interact with each other. You just go in and roll a d20 and then start picking. <laughs> <laughs> I won't lie, I did make a, a rollable chart for the book. <laughs> <laughs> those those can be very helpful when you need to, um, to just grab some stuff quick. It makes a great baseline because it's things like the lover or the leader or... Uh, the fall guy is one I really like. Somebody who's very naive and tends to easily be duped. Um, how do you end up naming your characters? 
I use a lot of uh, behind the name and a lot of Latin <laughs> or pseudo Latin rather. Uh, usually I'll have one like a defining trait about a character and from there I'll just start looking for names that have anything to do with like that keyword. Like recently I had a character who I wanted to be uh, very thiefy, uh, thiefy woman. And I wound up with Laverna and I believe she's a Roman goddess of thieves. Huh. Yeah, I tend to theme my names. Yeah, I when I'm making um, player characters, at least if I'm going to play in a game, it you know I always end up putting a bunch of a thought into that and like either going onto like Google Translate or something and like typing mm-hmm. in oh thief and then oh what is that <laughs> in this language and then yep. like, oh that kind of sounds cool I don't really care or it's maybe spelled cool I maybe don't know how to pronounce it but then I might just yeah. take the spelling <laughs> um, definitely. Do you have other books that you would recommend just as general reads for inspiration? Um, um, I mean, I'm. it's hard to say. Uh, I can tell you that one of my favorite authors is Daniel Polanski. Uh, he did a series called Lowtown, and his characters in that tend to be very... It's the gritty realism fantasy sort of thing, but he does very good characters. Um... It's a series called Nice Dragons Finish Last. Rachel Aaron, she does amazing characters. They're very vibrant. They stand out from each other. Uh, that you wind up rooting for them, or she does good villains too. So things like that. Just just read. <laughs> All the books. All the books. <laughs> Do you have specific tools that you use for your games, either for prepping or running the games? I guess I think you mentioned that you use Foundry uh, for uh-huh. online games. Well, I'm moving there. I For a long time, we used um, map tools, but lately I've been having some issues where I might have my connection tank, and since map tools has to be self-hosted, my players can't connect to me, and that's a problem. So Foundry does have cloud-based hosting, so I'm going to be moving towards it more for that. But also, once I looked at it, I was like, oh my god, all the stuff pre-made by the community, I don't have to code my own things anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I was looking uh, at their website because I haven't, I haven't like really taken an in-depth look at it, and I think pretty much every game that I've ever heard of is on there. And even <laughs> um, so, Wicked Ones, the Ben who I interviewed last week, um, his the, he has a module and stuff on there too. I don't know if he did that one or if somebody else made that one, but and his game released like this year, I'm pretty sure. So. Oh yeah. The community is very active. They're always putting out content. Even the the gentleman or the person who made the Pathfinder First Edition rule set still putting out and stuff like every week. I see there's an update pretty much. So active community definitely keeping it afloat. Uh, and even if they don't have your system on there, they do have a generic system where you can go in and do a lot of customizing without even needing to code things. Nice. As a uh, software developer by trade, I probably would just get lost in there making my own stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel you. Yeah, it's like, hmm, all you really need is JavaScript and a few other things. Uh, I could do that. <laughs> I think you were the one that asked, uh, you were curious what people's day jobs are. Can I ask you what your day job is? Yep. Um, so I'm a programmer, and I feel weird saying that. I guess I suffer from severe imposter syndrome because I'm completely self-taught. But I just happen to kind of be in a good spot in my uh, 
my company and they needed somebody to learn this new software they bought. So I learned it. And from there, I just kind of kept going. So now I'm mostly, you know, I run SQL and Python and maintain this very weird software that is completely unique to my company. and that, that's it. So it's not having much of an impact on my role as a DM, aside from that it really spurred me to learn programming, which helps with tools and using stuff in various programs. Well, especially with all of the online options that we have now. Mm-hmm. Does your group or your groups typically play in person or... Or no. did they did they play in person at one time? <laughs> no, we all we all live all over the place. I've even got two players in Australia, uh, and we, none of us have ever met each other in real life. Um, we would love to, but it's a case of a lot of my friends I made online in my youth. Like, for example, when I was talking about being like a snotty little teenage 10-year-old making fan fiction, one of my friends from those days is still my player. She's one of my Australian players. So we'll probably, we haven't met, maybe we will someday, but she's stuck with it through me. And a lot of the rest of my players are people I've just kind of picked up over the years through my various role-playing escapades. Well, that's pretty cool. It's, it's really awesome to hear how... I mean, you could be kind of locked to a location uh, and maybe not have a lot of people around you, but then still find long-term people to play with, you know, outside of your Mm -hmm. geographical area. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm from a fairly small rural town in Minnesota, and there's just not a lot of role-playing in general. Like, it's not something that a lot of people do where there's not a lot of game stores near me. So Mm -hmm. online is pretty much uh, the way to go. Um, I play yeah, with yeah. people that I grew up with, like a cousin and a couple of friends from mm-hmm. high school. But yeah. Yeah, I guess in that way, I am very lucky. Um, I just kind of steeped myself in a certain corner of the internet and came out of it with fistfuls of friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't go wrong there. Yeah. <laughs> do you, um, so if you're playing online, do you end up using maps a lot? Yes, yes. So. So I guess we'll loop back to the tools question. Um, I use a lot of maps. Um, These days, since I'm running Adventure Pass, they usually provide you with the maps, which is a huge help, Uh, even though the grids never align. Thank you, Paizo. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they don't do it for everything. They'll sometimes be like little counters here and there, and it's like, okay, well, there's no map for this. Time to go delving into our battle maps and go find myself something fitting. Uh, so I use that a lot, plus all the other corners of the internet, a lot of Patreon, map makers, uh, uh, CZE and PKU, especially. I love their art. Oh, they've got <laughs> some really good ones. Those are definitely high quality. Yep, giving them a shout out for their cool, cool maps. <laughs> um, so we use those um, occasionally, once in a great while. I won't. I'll need to do something on the fly, and it's MS Paint time. <laughs> Oh, uh, the the original map tool, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> this circle indicates the whole map. Go nuts! <laughs> um, and so, is your game? Your games are probably fairly tactical. Then I think that may be a Pathfinder thing as well. You would, 
You would think so. And there is quite a bit of um, combat and tacticalness. But because I am so deeply invested in the NPC aspect and the role-playing aspect, um, we do a lot of role-playing. So there's a lot of theater of mind involved as well. Um, if I can, I might toss up a filler background image and, you know, just to keep the mock, you know, something to look at. But uh, we also spend a lot of time in Discord in our respective servers playing things out. So what will happen is at the end of the session on our map tool, I'll be like, okay, well, from now until the next time we play, it, assuming we're in a not like mid combat when we stop or something. Here, you know, you know which NPCs are nearby, you know where you're at, go, role play, and they can tap me, and I will just respond with whatever NPCs they want. Sure, so it's kind of like a, a downtime in between session, just kind of role play as, as yep. they get time between the session. And that really expands our opportunity to flesh out not only their characters and my NPCs, but the relationships they're and um, I'm a big fan of romance, so a lot of my NPCs are, I guess you could say, romanceable. Uh, and in Wild Party, they want most of them are all hooked up with the players at this point. <laughs> um, so you know, I, I give them lots of opportunity for fluff, as we call it, to just have some time to relax, to contemplate, to talk about things that they've gone through. Uh, things that they're looking forward to as we get near the end of the adventure path. That's a common topic. We'll be like around a camp, you know, a campfire or an in room and be like, what do you guys think we're going to do when we're done saving the world? And that's always a fun conversation. Yeah. And that is kind of a good time to have some of those conversations because you wouldn't, you may not necessarily want to take up like screen time during a session mm -hmm. for some of those conversations, but they're still useful to the story of the characters and somewhat of the lore of the world as well. Yeah, exactly. As a as a side note, I'd be happy to share my house rules document with the server or I, I could even link it. Some of them I borrowed from other sources and some of them I just came up with. But if people are interested in having a really dynamic NPC solution, I have uh, two house rules for that. One of them is a a system that lets people recruit NPCs to travel with them. And in that aspect, our games are a little bit Final Fantasy-ish because it's like, choose your your companion. And then they have this roster of NPCs to go on any particular adventure. Um, or And marrying into that uh, kind of a bonding system where they can, over time, build up a score, companionship score with the NPCs. And as they do, it kind of unlocks a few perks and bonuses kind of culminating in, like, uh, for a wild party, they get a teamwork feat that they and the NPCs share for free. And Weird, weird uh, Collective is a little bit more anime. They get, they get a custom attack with their friend. <laughs> <laughs> A little more JoJo. <laughs> I was actually just going to ask, the next question I had was, what's your favorite house rule? Uh, that. <laughs> but, because um, I'm proud of it. But after that, I absolutely have to go with the elephant in the room, feet taxes. Uh, if you talk to anyone else who is super into Pathfinder first edition, they're probably going to say the same thing. It really cuts down on the... Well, feet taxes required to build cool things in Pathfinder. Um, and that would be a house rule. There's a Paizo house rule we also use heavily called the automatic bonus progression. So it takes out having uh, magic items that grant you 
necessary stat boosts over time, like armor class, resistance saves, things like that. And, and you get those automatically. The trade-off is your wealth by levels halved, so you don't need to spend that money on those same old magic items everyone always buys. You just get those bonuses sure. for free. It's just kind of assumed that your character is doing that those things anyways, so mm -hmm. why bother? Yeah, exactly. Um, do you have any games or RPG systems that you have not played but you would like to either play or run? Uh, other than 5th edition, there's like a dozen Powered by the Apocalypse hacks I would love to get into. I have played a couple, but there's always more. <laughs> um, hmm. Honestly, I have a whole roster of things that have come up over the years just browsing various storefronts, and I've been adding them to a list being like, cool things I'd love to play someday <laughs> list. Uh, so trying to think offhand. There's a lot of Blade in the Dark hacks I would like to play, like Scum and Villainy, which I believe is like uh, uh, very Firefly slash Star Wars-y, so that would be fun. Um, there's a system called uh, Cats of Cthulhu, which is just cats and Call, Call of Cthulhu mixed together. <laughs> uh, things like that, yeah. Tiny Dungeon sounds fun. Um, and do you, d does your current groups, do they primarily want to stick with Pathfinder, or do you ever do, like, one-shots where you jump into another system for a week or two? Yeah. We definitely do one-shots. Um, I don't even always have to run them. <laughs> uh, so we, we've done all in some Monster of the Week. Uh, I had a friend that's run Kids on Bikes. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I have a friend who's trying to get Tavern Tales up. So we definitely do the one-shots sort of thing when we can, time permitting. Uh, so, so there's that. There's been talk about maybe switching off Pathfinder in the future, but uh, I don't know. For like our main campaigns after this, maybe 5th edition, we'll see. <laughs> Do you have any tips for new and veteran DMs? So for the new DMs, my tip is dive in, play, practice. You know, you're going to be intimidated Try not to be, if at all possible, get uh, your players that are your friends. <laughs> and, and hopefully they are your friends. And that way you don't feel quite as pressured to perform. Your friends are going to be very forgiving. And a lot of the times your friends just want to have fun with you. So dive in there. P practice. Practice makes perfect. I'll always, be always be playing. Um, and for veteran DMs, that one's a little harder because uh, I, when I hear your the tips from other DMs on this podcast, I'm always learning something new. So I'm intimidated myself to put something out there. Um, <laughs> I think I'd have to say, make sure you're having fun as well. Um, there have been times in the past where I pushed myself trying to make sure the players are all enjoying themselves and it wound up making me a little bit miserable. And once my players found out, they were kind of like, no, 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 don't do that. You need to have fun too. So that was kind of a uh, relief. And I'm sure for any DMs out there who feel like they might be burning out, your players probably don't want you to burn out. Feel free to relax, take a step back if you need to, or cut down on your session. Whatever you got to do, just take a take a step back and play a one shot in a completely different system if it makes you happy do it right or i've even heard people do like yeah we're gonna play board games this week because i not feeling mm -hmm. up to you know a full 
RPG yeah. session. But that's a really good point, though, about not burning out and then also um, making sure that you're having fun. Because, like you said, ultimately, if, if the DM burns out and isn't having fun and stops, then everybody else kind of has to stop, too. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, and I guess this kind of goes in with the vet and newbie advice talk to your players you know keep a dialogue open uh don't assume things uh so a lot of dms there they feel that imposter syndrome where they're like oh my gosh they probably didn't have any fun ask them do you are you guys having fun do your best to believe them when they say yes (laughs) i i think the first couple times that i ran um a game myself i definitely kind of had that because i was so consumed with like there's you know, there's a lot of moving parts as a DM mm-hmm. to, like, keep track of. And, you know, it's one mind versus, you know, the three minds of the players. And then mm-hmm. the, like, pressure to, like, uh, like if I'm if I'm sitting and thinking for a second, like, I don't want there to be, you know, dead air for a little bit. Because I think that they're not going to be having fun. But they're just, you know, they're just going to wait for you to come yeah. up with whatever you have to come up with. And, you know, after you've done it a couple times, it's like, okay, they're... They'll let you think for a for a minute or two if you need to, and mm-hmm. and then you just kind of move on when you're ready. So, yep, yep. Player, I think uh, players are a lot more understanding than some DMs are afraid of. Um, they they just want to have fun. And, and I think it can be easy to get into that mindset when there's just so many. Th- it, it's hard to pay attention to everything as a DM, mm-hmm. so you kind of have blind spots and. You know, you're not going to catch everything, but that's okay. Yeah. Yep. And uh, at the end of the day, you're probably going to look back at everything you did and be like, huh, that was actually really cool. <laughs> if you could have any RPG book created, uh, so you could put anything in it, what book would you have written? That's such a hard question. <laughs> um, honestly, I think Blades in the Dark did that for me. Um, it had all the rules, it had tons of NPCs, it had factions, it had things that they, you know, what are these factions' goals, what are these people's individual goals, what are their personalities like? It had everything you could ever ask for. I could, I ran that half-blind and I still had a ton of fun. So I think Blades in the Dark, definitely my ideals gold standard for an RPG. Awesome. So you don't even have to hope for the book to be made. It already <laughs> it already exists. That's perfect. Yeah, I just I just hope more more people follow that format of giving a really complete setting to people. Blades in the Dark is definitely fun to read through as a DM mm-hmm. and and I guess the core rules are even free online if you want to yeah. go look at them, which is which is nice. Yep. Definitely. Definitely cool. Uh, I I found myself once I got into Blades in the Dark, modeling a lot of my future, uh, like one shots around that format, like having clocks, for example, to show tension or pr- progress. That was such a cool feature to learn about and jotting down factions how are these factions interacting with each other who hates each other who's infiltrating someone hands down number one way to approach any intrigue in an rpg follow blades <laughs> do you have a spe- uh, a favorite part of blades 
Yeah, I'm gonna go with the clocks. Yeah, using those. That was such a such a mind blowing mechanic. Having, and I did not understand it at first. I was like, clocks. What is that gonna do? But no, putting up a a clock in front of your players and filling it in over time as they continually screw up. Oh, that that was such a good feeling. <laughs> yeah, anything that helps ratchet up the tension. Um, yeah, is really good. Where can we find you? So I do run a roleplay server on Discord. It's called Ephemeral Creations. Uh, I'm sure you'll provide the link to folks. Yep. <laughs> um, what it is is basically it's many, 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 many things we call fragments where are like standalone worlds. You play your character in whatever world you want, but you can also play them in other worlds simultaneously. And the idea behind it is that every character has a core essence. We call them the remnant. And those remnants can be transformed in depending on their surroundings. This lets you take your original characters and tweak with tweak them, play with them, see what they do in different scenarios. So you might want to be like, okay, I've got this character and she's really nerdy. But I want to see how she does in like a hellscape Mad Max style setting. Like, how's her nerdiness going to pan out in that? So it's a very fun multi-universe style roleplay server. That is really cool. I have not heard of a of like taking characters through different uh, <laughs> settings. I guess. Um, I will say people are more than welcome to make their own fragments, aka settings, if they want. Uh, there's there's so many. I I've lost count of them, and they can be original or they can just be fandom style. We've got some fragments in there that are literally straight up. Yeah, this is just a role play for Tokyo Ghoul. Enjoy. <laughs> Um, and do you keep the characters, do you make like, like if you have one in kind of one area and one in a different area, is it like the same character sheet or how does that like cross fragment we don't work? Have a, a formal character sheet. What, what I do, we ask is that you just kind of have somewhere where you keep track of that stuff. You can either, we have like dedicated channels where you can put some basic information about your character that's relevant. Or we also have an, uh, play, um, a pro boards forum where you can go ahead and post stuff to keep track of there. But the idea is basically, you know, these character, this character, even if you're playing them simultaneously in different settings, it's the same character essentially living different lives. Yeah, that is super cool. I since I'm on your server, but I didn't quite understand everything that was going on, so that makes <laughs> it makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, yeah. If anyone joins, um, you've got questions, please feel free to ask questions. I'm usually around. I've got a couple mods who can help out. They're, they're friends and players. They're vets of my shenanigans. Um, and yeah, we're just here to have fun. It might be a little bit quiet unless more people join up. But if you put out a request to role play with us, I think you're going to find a lot of people down to play. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. It was nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Dungeon Master's Toolkit Podcast. You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or join us in our Discord server.